So now we can look at these two short psalms, one of prayer and one of praise. These psalms reflect the issues of timing for in our prayers we're usually responding to the present with a hope for the future. And our hope for the future is based upon what's happened in the past and what's happened in the past is something that we give praise to God for. And so the two psalms work together. One is the prayer in the present for the future. The other is the praise of God for what he has already done for us in the past. So what's the issue of the present in Psalm 123? Well, we don't know the historical circumstances in which it is written. There's no indication of who wrote it, about what or what period of time, nor any particular disaster or war or something like that that is being referred to. Rather, it's something that is of life, that could happen at any time and could have happened any time in the history of Israel because it frequently happened in the lives of Israelites. For it's about rich people treating poor people with contempt and scorn. It's about godless people treating godly people with contempt and scorn. You could think, for example, of Psalm 137. Just turn over a couple of pages there. 137, page 621. You see, this one is historically located very clearly in Babylon. By the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion... On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us what's one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the song of the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. You see, here they are in Babylon, captives of Babylon, And the Babylonians are treating them with contempt, treating them with scorn, making fun of the captives they have. It's so often the case that the great, the wealthy, the powerful, the mighty treat with contempt the little people, the poor people, the struggling people. Uh, Leave some indication back there at Psalm 123 and come over to James chapter 5 with me. James chapter 5, it's page 1207, 1207. 1207, James, this is the New Testament. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the labourers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He doesn't resist you. It is just part of the wealth and arrogance. It's the common character of rich people that they think they deserve their wealth. And they think that the poor deserve their poverty. Uh, They think that they're better. And 
they do not think of the inconvenience and difficulty of life that they place upon the poor and the sufferers in the result of their weaknesses. It just goes with the territory unconsciously. I saw it classically one day with my own self in terms of a real estate agent up at Randwick. I owned a, a, a unit up at Randwick and it was let out to other people and there was a terrible hailstorm in Kensington where I lived and we had to move out of our house up into a unit up in Randwick. So I went to my real estate agent to find out if he had anywhere to rent up there so that I could live for six months or three months till our house was fixed in Kensington. It was extraordinary, you see. When I went to the real estate agent as a landowner with a unit, I was ushered into a room, sat down with a table and a cup of coffee, and they discussed with me the, the lease and the details and all the rest of it. But when I went up as someone looking to rent, I was treated at the counter, and I was asked in front of other people who were sitting around all the details of my financial life to be spoken out publicly in front of the, the girl behind the counter who treated me and my life with contempt, who just treated me as if I was somebody trying to rip off the system and was going to be a bad tenant. And the difference between the two ways you are treated was astonishing. I mean, I would never have guessed the two ways I was treated, except I was treated those two ways within just a few weeks of each other. And when you are always treated one way, you come to expect it of life. And when you're always treated the other way, you come to expect that of life as well, don't you? And so those living at ease and at wealth and in prosperity often do not realise the ways in which they oppress the poor and the needy and the difficult. There are two, there are two Sydneys at the moment in Sydney. There are the wealthy who live close into the city and there are the poor who are being pushed further and further to the outskirts of the city, the only place they can afford the real estate, the only place they can afford the rents, and, of course, they are then charged huge amounts of money in the public transport to be able to get into the city to work where the wealthy live and can even walk to work, though they tend to have cars and park them in their city office blocks there is the difference that happens and it happens for the whole of life. Now, let's turn and see the principle of this psalm. It's a fairly simple observation. Servants look upwards and masters look downwards. The servants look upward to their masters and mistresses' hands for two things, for commands and for generosity or mercy. And so you see it in verse 2. Behold, the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their masters as the eyes of the maidservants to the hands of her mistress. They look for commands because they're servants, possibly even slaves, the word could be translated, and their task is to serve their master or mistress in any wish that they have for them. The observant waiter or waitress in a, in, in a restaurant keeps their eye on the diner to see what they need next to enjoy their meals. It's the waiter's job to watch. 
Isn't it frustrating when you're there and you want something and you can't catch the waiter's eye? Don't you feel like they're not doing their job when I have to stand up and say, hey, 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 over here, I just want a knife and fork, I want a spoon to eat my soup. It's, it's a failure for them if they are not keeping their eye on the diner. But they also look for the generosity and mercy, especially in the American world of living off tips. The waiters watch carefully, not only for commands, but especially for gratuities. Personally, I hate the tipping culture. I'm an old-fashioned Aussie in this regard. I prefer that waiters are paid a proper salary and don't have to live off tips, and that customers are charged properly and therefore can expect to be paying for the service that they receive. And I don't like the American waiters who constantly come around seeking to refill my glass of water as if I'm incapable of doing such a thing and asking how my meal is and how I'm enjoying it so far, which is generally great until they turn up. But when your livelihood is dependent upon the hand that is going to tip you, when that is your wage for the night, you'll be very careful to pay attention, won't you? And whereas in Australia I have to call and call and call to get any waiter to come and serve me, in America I only have to raise an eyebrow and two or three will head over immediately. So also throughout history, servants, slaves, look to their master's hand to be given mercy and to be given the gratuity, to be given the payment. Now just as the servant looks up, so also does the master look downward. But the downward look can be one of two kinds. It can be with contempt. It can be with mercy. For there is the problem with the cruel and ungodly master. They look down with contempt, treating their servants abominably, ruling over them harshly, treating them as if they're not human, but like they're animals. In fact, some pamper their animals with greater loving and affection than they care for their servants. And it was this kind of sense that I got as someone standing in a public place inside the office of the real estate agents wanting to rent. The contempt with which I was treated was palpable. It was appallingly rude. And I chose not to rent with them under any circumstances. But I may say, it was no different if I left that real estate agent and went down the road to the next one. It was only different if you owned a unit or a house and were renting it to other people. You're an owner, you're treated completely differently. Not all masters are like that. For some treat them with mercy, some treat people generously, providing for them, seeking their welfare, caring for them personally. They may have a different place in society and in their wealth and their influence, but they never forget the reality of being created equally in the image of God, of being equally redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In... Uh, Singapore, where I've been just recently, but I've been on other occasions. There are lots of domestic servants. And it is interesting to see 
the differing ways in which domestic servants, often Filipinos, are being treated by their masters and mistresses. But I have come across the Christians who have actually used the domestic servants' life in Singapore as an opportunity to give them education, to provide for them training, to send them back to their home country, better equipped to start up a business there, to actually get themselves out of servants, into being somebody with a different kind of lifestyle because they are concerned for the welfare of the nanny who's raising their children. Because they see them not just as people to order around, boss around and get them to do their dirty work, their dirty work, but see them as people created in the image of God, redeemed and saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and deserving of the same kindness and treatment that they themselves would wish to give. As Paul says to the Ephesian masters, stop threatening knowing that he who is both their master and your master is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him. Every one of us will one day come before the Lord Jesus Christ to give answer for how we have lived here, which includes how we have treated people here, which includes how we've treated a taxi driver or a bus driver, how we've treated the person who sells us a ticket at the, uh, at the stage, Jason, uh, it, it, every aspect of how we've treated other people as we have treated others so we must expect the Lord to treat us and we who are in wealth and affluence need especially to be careful so then let's look at the prayer of the psalmist for he looks up to his true master the one in heaven to the Lord our God enthroned in heaven. Verse 1, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. And verse 2 ends, so our lives look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. For that is the master of masters, that is the Lord of lords, that is Yahweh by name. That's the one to whom we really serve and to whom we're really looking, not simply for commands but also more importantly for us and more urgently for us for his mercy for his gracious generosity towards us and so our psalmist is looking for mercy verse 3 he repeatedly asks for mercy have mercy upon us O lord have mercy upon us but the mercy he's seeking is not forgiveness for sins it's not the punishment for sinfulness that he's seeking to avoid, it's mercy for help in the harsh realities of a godless world, the injustice of being treated with contempt. For he is experiencing the unfair treatment of those in wealth and power. His problem is the contempt he's experiencing from the proud, those who have enough. Look down verse 4. Verse 4, our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Now, those who are at ease are the rich. And they are also the proud, the arrogant, the lifted up ones, high and mighty in their own estimation. And they are so commonly given to contempt and to scorn, they put down and oppress the poor, often not even realising that they're doing it. They treat people 
without concern for their welfare, without justice, without love. But notice in the psalm, the underlying issue is of timing. For the psalmist must have patience, for his mercy comes and therefore we must wait. You see it at the end of verse 2. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Uh, This is always the difficulty of humans in our suffering. We want it to end, and we want it to end now. There's only one time I want suffering to end, that's immediately. I never want it to kind of in any way hang on. It's got to be over now. Straight away is when I want suffering to end. But God, in his mercy will give answer to our prayers in his good time, not ours. And so we see the psalmists impatient. We've had enough, he says, as he pleads. Verse 3, he talks of having more than enough of their contempt. Verse 4, having more than enough of their scorn. And when we're praying, we have this double-minded attitude towards patience and impatience. We are waiting for our Lord's hand to give as he sees fit, but we're telling him to hurry up all the time. We want him to do it and do it urgently, and so we want it now. And so it is helpful in our prayers to remember the past, as Psalm 124 does. For then we can remember the blessings of God and keep our confidence in the Lord that he will in due time answer our prayers, for look what he has done for us already. And so the psalmist gives us a logical start of if then. You see verse 1 starts if, verse 2 starts if, verse 3, 4, 5 all start with then. If this is the case, if this is the case, then, then, then is how the argument goes. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel save, it had not been the Lord, then they would have swallowed us up alive then the flood would have swept us away then over us would have gone all the raging waters the key of the psalmist's understanding is that the Lord is on our side Uh, it's expressed in the negative which is even more powerful in logic if the Lord had not been on our side then these things would have happened the Lord he is speaking of is of course Yahweh If Yahweh had not been on our side, then we would have lost everything. But notice for it's very important to understand in our present climate of wars in the Middle East or Southwest Asia, especially wars that are being raged in the name of religion, notice that the Lord Yahweh was on the side of Israel. Verse 1, if it had not been the Lord Yahweh who was on our side, Let Israel now say, see, Israel was not any nation. Israel was Yahweh's nation. Yahweh was on Israel's side. But we can't apply Israel's special status with God to other nations like Australia, as if God is on Australia's side when we go to war against the Boers or against the Germans or the Germans or against Korea or against Vietnam. Whenever we've gone to war, we can't say, well, God's on our side because we are not Israel. Israel had a special relationship with God. Nor can we say that 
Yahweh will be on the side of the church, as if the church replaces Israel as a nation. For church has waged war against church at some times, and they're both waging and saying, Yahweh's on our side, which is a nonsense. Nor should we apply it to the present state, nation of Israel, for it was constituted in 1948 and has nothing to do with the promises of God in the Old Testament. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God in the Old Testament. Because Jesus is the Israel who fulfills all the promises of God. For all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus, says the New Testament. Once Jesus has fulfilled the expectation of Israel, then the nation Israel as a nation is no longer the one that has God on their side, let alone the Zionist one that has been set up in Palestine just 60 or so years ago. However, this psalm is written in the time of the Old Testament, when indeed Yahweh was on Israel's side. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, verse 2, when people rose up against us, the people that are there are humanity itself. For Israel found humanity against us. The word people, actually in Hebrew, is the word Adam. When Adam was against us, that is, humanity was against us. Everybody was against Israel because only Israel was God's chosen nation. For throughout the history of Israel, the world was against them. Uh, There were some friendships, uh, the Queen of Sheba, uh, Hiram, King of Tyre, but basically it was the enmity and antagonism from Egypt to Babylon, through Greece all the way to Rome. And if Yahweh had not been on the side, they would have been swallowed up, swept away and swamped. Verse 3, swallowed alive. Verse 4, swept away in the flood. Verse 5, swamped by the waters. I mean, you can think of the crossing of the Red Sea. The enemy behind, wishing to swallow them up. The waters of the Red Sea in front of them, trying to drown them, seeking to drown them as the waters finally drowned the Egyptians. But it's not just then. It's over and over again. It happens in the history of Israel in the Old Testament that it was the Lord who rescued them from one disaster after another. And so the psalmist blessed the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, he says in verse 6, who has not given us to pray as prey to their teeth, We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we've escaped. Our help is in the name of Yahweh who made heaven and earth. And so using other striking images, he describes their escape as as not being prey given over to the teeth of the wild animals to be eaten, to be swallowed, to be destroyed. The enemy that would devour them if they could but rather they've been rescued like, well, the snare of the fowlers would have captured them, but they've escaped. The snare is broken. The captured bird has gone out of the trap so that they can't be now eaten. Again, you can, you can think back into the history of Israel. It happens over and over again. Sennacherib's one of the classic ones. Sennacherib was the king of Assyria. He bottled up Hezekiah in Jerusalem for several years in a siege a siege is a dreadful thing 
we're seeing it in these wars at the moment but of course when you're living in a walled city you can have the army all the way around you completely and there's no way in there's no way out and in the end you run out of food you run out of drink and if you haven't got good water supply in the city itself and you slowly starve to death that's what Sennacherib was doing to Hezekiah he destroyed all of the towns of Judah and he now besieged Jerusalem There they were in the cage of their own city when suddenly, unexpectedly, God intervened. And for reasons that were strange and mysterious, the Assyrians packed up and went home. And the people in the city couldn't even believe it as they went out and found the tents, the camp of Assyria had been left behind as the Assyrians fled. It's recorded for us in the scriptures. It's recorded for us in Herodotus. Sennacherib himself alludes to the fact that he couldn't conquer Hezekiah in the city of Jerusalem. They were relieved as a besieged city, rescued by God. His people rescued from the snare, from the fowler's snare. For the psalm ends up where it begins. Our help comes from Yahweh. The God who is the only God, the God who made heaven and earth, the God nobody can ultimately rival, for he is the creator of everything and everybody and of every nation. He is the creator of Adam, the Adam who would contend with his people. So if the Lord is on our side, we can't be defeated. And Yahweh is on our side, says the psalmist. And he continues to be on our side today, but not where people expect. Not in the army that fights in the name of the Islamic State, nor in the armies that will fight against the Islamic State. Not in the Air Force that will drop bonds on them. Nor is he in the State of Israel. Nor is he on the side of the Australians. Yahweh is on our side where people would never expect to find him or see him. He's on our side in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, where his son paid for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. For there he defeated our true enemy, the external one, the accuser, the liar, Satan, and the internal one, our own sinful nature and its practices. And there he satisfies our true need, turning aside God the Father's anger against us and declaring that it is as if we have never sinned. And not only in the cross do we see God on our side, but also in the resurrection which demonstrates his victory, his victory over sin because he paid for it fully so that sin could not hold him in death. His victory over Satan, for now the judgment of the world has commenced. His victory over death itself, for he is risen from the dead to live eternally and to give new life. And it's more than that, he demonstrated his victory, he implements his victory pouring out his spirit upon people to bring them to new birth, to new life, and empowering us to live 
differently, to live no longer for ourselves but for him who for our sake were died and was raised again. For both in our psalm of the present troubles and prayer and in our psalm of the past victories and praise, we have the hope for the future. The psalmist, when he prays for mercy in Psalm 123, is waiting, waiting, waiting for the time ahead when the Lord's hand will deliver the mercy and the generosity and the grace. And all who suffer in this world, we are waiting for the better day, for something better. We do not hope for what we already have. We hope for what we do not yet have says the Paul in Romans. And the psalmist who prays and the Christian who prays is always a person of hope for the future. But the psalmist, when he praises God for his mercies, is reminded to look to the Lord with confidence that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That there is nothing that will be able to be done to us that God cannot rescue us from because look what he's done. Look how he has rescued and continues to rescue and will continue to rescue us. You see, we are the people of the future. We who are the Lord's people. We're the people of the future because we know of the past victories, especially his death and resurrection. And we're the people of the future because we know that God is listening to our prayers for what will happen. We have to wait. The future hasn't come. I want the future instantly because I'm of the instant generation. But I need to learn patience, endurance. I need to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in his suffering. But I know what the future holds. And so, as Paul says to the Thessalonians, we do not grieve as those who have no hope because we know that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and therefore we too shall rise from the dead. Because of the past, we know the future and therefore we pray in hope. Psalm 123 is just that kind of prayer. Psalm 124 is just that kind of confidence in the past that leads us to praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death on the cross for us and for his resurrection, for the pouring out of your Holy Spirit into our lives to make us into your people. We thank you, Father, that we can know that you are on our side in him and that we can look up to you with confidence that your hand is a hand of grace and generosity and of mercy. Give us patience, please, Father, as we wait for you to act on our behalf. Help us to keep our confidence in you, knowing what you have already done for us and assured of what you will do for us. Do we pray, Father, for the many who are suffering much more deeply than we are now, especially those, Father, who know your name 
and who are being persecuted and killed, crucified and beheaded in Southwest Asia at the moment. Be with those families, Father, as they face such terrible persecution. Give them that confidence that your son lives, that he has paid the penalty, that he is alive and is Lord, even when all around seems black and dark. Help them to remember the past so that they may praise you and pray with patient, eager expectation as they look to you for rescue in the present and for the future. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.